I'm Jeff Cohen. Binyamin Abrams is a research associate professor, master lecturer, and director of general chemistry at Boston University. And if you think that's a mouthful, you can add doctor of theoretical chemistry and rabbi to the mix. Abrams' impressive resume reflects a rich and diverse background that was a catalyst to his finding his path in science, Torah Judaism, and the harmony between them. Rabbi Dr. Abrams, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thanks, Jeff. So excited to be here. So clearly I said a mouthful, and there's a lot of technical terms I can tell that we're going to be getting into, but we'd like to start with some easier questions of just getting to know you, the person. So can you just give us a sense of where you were born and raised? Sure, absolutely. I was born in Montreal, Canada. Truthfully, a, uh, a little island north of Montreal, Laval, but most people just call it Montreal. So born in Montreal, Canada, raised there, and then uh, left home to go to college. Okay, so before we get into the college years, take us inside what life was like growing up from a Jewish perspective. We were very cognizant of the fact that we were Jewish, proud to be Jewish, in fact. Very traditional. So Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, definitely. We played hide the bread for eight days. It was, I mean, we knew it was there. Let's be honest. We all knew it was there. It was like a it was like a communal game of chicken with uh, the loaf of bread. Never did a loaf of uh, Wonder Bread look so good for so long. But um, as far as actual, you know, practical observance, I mean, my parents sent me to a school where I learned Hebrew and I learned about holidays, but we weren't very observant. And this was pretty standard, I would say, for a lot of the people in our community. My grandparents were more observant, and my, my great-grandparents, God rest their souls, they were all from. So did you know any from people in your neighborhood? Was there any kind of mixture of those different groups, or everybody was somewhat similar to you when you were growing up? Well, there, there was the rabbi. Mm-hmm. And, the ra- <laughs> and, 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 and I'd like to assume that the rabbi kept Shabbos and kosher. It, yeah, I'm pretty sure he did. No, for sure the rabbi kept Shabbos and kosher. And there were uh, the occasional people who kept kosher. A lot of people kept kosher in the house, but outside of the house, maybe not so much. People used to joke they had three sets of dishes, right? Milchigs and fleshigs and treif. And I mean, that, that was a, a reality in, in a lot of these houses. But it was, very, it was a very traditional, you know, we knew we were Jewish. We were going to celebrate Hanukkah. And then uh, we'd get the, a, a little bush, a little tree for the, the next holiday. And then did you have a traditional bar mitzvah, like similar to what your friends were doing? It was uh, m- more bar than mitzvah, but um, no, absolutely. <laughs> My Zaydi al he took me out of school and brought me to shul, put me on a pair of tefillin, got me an aliyah, gave me a thimble filled with Crown Royal. This is Montreal uh, l'chaim, as you know. I, I also had the, the, the big party on, uh, you know, with, with the band and, the, and the, the, the slow dancing and the fast dancing. And they, they paid people to come and hype up the crowd, you know, the, the whole thing there, too. But I also did have a bar mitzvah. You have the bar mitzvah, and, I, and I've interviewed enough people to see that that's often like the end of the line in terms of the Jewish education for kids who are in like a public school type setting. So were you doing anything Jewish wise during kind of the middle into high school years? You know, uh, Montreal high school, seventh through 11th grade. And so the bar mitzvah was beginning of eighth grade and definitely still had a kind of a not religious Hebrew school vibe after that, where we we did keep learning Ivrit and uh, Jewish history 
and uh, you know a lot about uh, the the history, the modern and ancient history of our people, which was I think a very valuable thing to learn. But as far as religious observance, my grandparents went to shul more often, obviously, than we did. And every once in a while, I would you know I'd want to stay with Bubby and Zaidi Friday night, and so they would they would take me to shul. My, my Zaidi Elvishalom was the the candy man in shul, and he was the president of the Kiddush club. So everyone loved my Zaidi. So, you know, it was nice to, to be around the celebrity in shul. So I, w- I would go with him every once in a while. But day-to-day, week-to-week Jewish observance, it was never something that was part of our family's culture. We'd have Friday night dinner at my grandmother's house, but it was mostly watching the Red Wings play the, the Montreal Canadiens. And so a couple questions ago, you referenced going off to college. So let's go back to your education now. As you're finishing off the high school years, do you have a thought as far as what you want to be and where you want to go to school? Yeah, I wanted to be a doctor because my grandmother gave me two choices in life, doctor and lawyer, which was all all well and good. But uh, And I did for a while think that I was going to do that. But then I realized I don't really like being around illness and, and death, God forbid, and, and, all, and all that. So I wanted to do something a little bit less health-related but still scientifically minded. And I really liked chemistry at the time. So I decided, hey, I'm going to study chemistry. Funny enough, my grandmother, when she came, when I got my PhD, she said to me, not that kind of doctor. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're laughing, but, you know, imagine being a 20-something-year-old. It's like, well, it was a little sharp. But, you know, Bobby's always right, so you have to listen to your Bobby. Okay, but you didn't say where you went to school. You, you said you're maybe you're going to be a doctor, but then you decided to go the chemistry route. So where were you in school? So I went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, RPI. It's a school in upstate New York, right near Albany, Troy, New York, actually. So, you know, not too far, but not too close. I was the first, though, in my family to leave Montreal for any reason, right? You had to get written permission from your grandparents to go on a trip, to go anywhere. And this that I was going to be away for months at a time, forget in a different city, not even just a different province, literally a a different country. I mean, New York is close enough to, to Canada, but still... This was a big deal. So I went to to RPI. It's in upstate New York. I studied there for five years. I did a five-year BS, MS, bachelor's and master's in chemistry. Okay. Then you said ultimately you got your PhD, so the studies continued beyond RPI. Yeah, I realized I was still too far north. And so I went a a couple hundred miles uh, further south down to Manhattan and uh, went to NYU to get my PhD in uh, theoretical chemistry. Got it. And so what was the master plan once you had all these degrees? What did you think you were going to do with it all? Oh, man. I didn't know what I was going to do for dinner most days <laughs> back then. I mean, you're asking me if I had this this grandiose master plan. I always assumed I was going to go into academia, I think. I liked teaching. I liked teaching more than I liked doing research. I didn't realize that that was really an option to go the teaching-focused path in academia. So, you know, still worked hard on the research. But I, I always I always liked teaching. I was teaching from when I was in high school. I'd tutor friends. I would teach pe- and anything, you know, anything that I could. I didn't realize back then, you know, this whole, like, see one, do one, teach one, which is what we, which is what we tell people is a really great way to be a, a student. I didn't realize that that was, you know, a, I didn't realize that that was actually a Torah principle, that being active in learning was was a big part of learning. And uh, I didn't realize it was going to be what I did with my life. But uh, I, I knew I, I wanted to help people 
to discover the beauty of the world and, and how the world functions. And so really grateful that that's where I was able to go. And so what's going on Jewish-wise during these years when you're getting your degrees? Absolutely nothing. I, I mean, so I, I did at one point go to like a student Seder once, but it was kind of irrec- irrecognizable from the Seders that I went to when I was growing up. We, as I said, we weren't religious. We weren't observant. But everything we did was pretty much modeled after the traditional orthodox way of doing things. And so what I discovered when I came to the States was that there was this, well, if you're not going to be orthodox, well, let's just go in a a kind of a different direction. And so that didn't, it just like, this wasn't the Judaism that I recognized as being what I grew up with. So it just didn't speak to me. And so I quickly stopped doing very much of anything in the, uh, in the in the Jewish realm over there. I would say beyond going to maybe one Seder throughout all of college, that was maybe it. And I also saw in researching a little bit about you that during the college and post-grad years, there were some unique things that you got involved in that I didn't even mention in the intro. So I just wanted to give you a chance to share a couple of things you got involved in as a young adult. Sure. No, I mean, <laughs> you ask about Jewish things. I remember this one time I'm out with a group of people dancing. I was a pretty avid dancer back in the day. I, I actually competed professionally. And um, yeah, listen, everyone's got to have a hobby. At, at a school <laughs> where the, 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 the you know, RPI had, had way more um, men than it did have women, and I'm not going to get into graphic detail here, but th- there was a club that was by design 50-50. So it, it, for, for me back in college, it made a lot of sense to get involved with this. And it turns out I was, I was pretty okay at it. So I, I just kept doing it. I remember being out one time with a group of, uh, of friends and, uh, and one of them said, well, isn't tonight Yom Kippur? I'm like, well, maybe I should stop eating. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why I remember that, but uh, yeah, wasn't the, the high point of my Jewish life and Jewish observance. So I've done enough of these interviews now where I'm asking someone, maybe when they're a young adult, what role Judaism is playing in their life. And they're telling me basically not much or nothing. And then there's this first opening where Judaism finds its way into the person's life. So is, is this the point in time as your career is beginning that Judaism finds its way in? Or does that come later on and you're more focused on your career once you have your degree? This is an interesting story. I hope you're ready for this. So I'm, I'm sitting in my apartment in Lower Manhattan, 2nd Avenue, 11th Street, a few blocks from the famous 2nd Avenue Deli, which I come to find later, by the way, is not actually kosher, which is kind of like my whole life as a Jew has just crumbled finding this. I mean, I didn't didn't really bother me because I was also going out and eating trafe everywhere, but I mean, it was just like, where, where are the basics? Anyway, so, so I'm sitting here in my apartment on 2nd and 11th. It was, it was winter time, it was maybe February, and I get a call from a friend who, long story, very long story short, says he had a dream about me. And all you have to know about my friend is that he was extraordinarily persistent. And those dreams that he had, he felt had a lot of power and uh, better to acquiesce than to fight. Is It was always the, uh, the idea. He says, I, you need to go talk to your rabbi. I'm like, dude, what rabbi? 
I'm, I'm maybe I'm 23 years old. I haven't spoken to a rabbi in a decade. Where am I going to find a rabbi? I mean, and also, rabbis are not people that you talk to. They're not normal. They, they get up on a pulpit and, and, and wax poetic about some nerdy thing. So I said to the guy, I said, I don't know any rabbi. He says, it's very important that you reconnect with your Jewish roots. So I'm thinking hard at this point. I mean, I need to get this guy off my back. I, I love him. He's a great guy. And I just, I just need to... I need, I need to do something. And I said, well, you know what? I, I did the math. It's the middle of the winter. So Passover's coming up. I always loved Passover. My Zaydi Elvishal made a Seder. Both of my Zaydis made Seders. One night we go to one Zaydi. The other night we go to the other Zaydi. I'm not going to tell you which one paid better for the Afikoman. <laughs> what I will tell you is my uncle paid better than both of them. He <laughs> would pay me not to find it so that he can keep watching the hockey game. Anyways... So Passover's coming up. I'll go to a Passover Seder. Says, yes, that's exactly what you should do. Called my cousins in New Jersey. They'd been inviting me. This I'm maybe my third year of grad school. So th they've been inviting me for years now, and I've always turned them down. And I said, you know what? I'm coming for Pesach. And uh, they said, okay, cool, great. And it was five days before Passover. I get a call. They're not feeling well. Long story short, they're canceling. Seder. And now I'm up, uh, 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 up, up, up a stream without a paddle. I'm like, I don't, I don't, you know, I promised my friend I'm going to go to a Seder. I need, I need to do something. So I start looking up communal sa Passover Seders. Man, they were not cheap. They were quite the expensive thing in Manhattan at the time. All over the place. I, I went to Hillel at NYU. I said, hey, I'm coming to your Seder. They're like, uh, sorry, buddy, we're full. I'm like, Okay, what am I going to do? Later that night, I get an email from Chabad at New York University. I'd never heard of Chabad before in my life. And you're asking me, how could I not have heard of Chabad? What rock was I living under? You know, I, I'm from Montreal. There's a big Chabad presence in Montreal. I was living in Manhattan. I'd never heard of Chabad. But there were two words in this email that would change my life. Totally free. <laughs> which was literally what I wanted to pay for this Seder. So I'm like, this is great. And I, uh, I went to the Seder. I put on my best three-piece suit with a pocket square matching my shoes as, you know, my socks and my best pair of Ferragamo shoes. And uh, you can imagine, so I walk into this Seder. They're looking at me like, who is this guy? I'm looking at them like, who are these guys? And let me tell you something, it was the most amazing experience. The Seder lasted 45 minutes from beginning to eating. Everyone read in English. One, one of the people there tried to read in Hebrew, you know, like bust out the Hebrew school stuff. And the rabbi's like, listen, we have a pace we're trying to keep on. No speeches, no divrei Torah. And then when we finally got the brisket, so everyone's shoving brisket. So now the rabbi gets up on a chair and in front of 100 people starts giving uh, a very poignant Dvar Torah, which is amazing because, you know, now everyone's quiet. They're eating their brisket. They realize, wow, we should listen because they, he didn't, you know, this wasn't a three-hour Seder. It was a 45-minute Seder. At least we could do for the free brisket is listen to what he has to say. And he told an amazing parable about diamonds and chicken fat. And the bottom line was that mitzvahs are valuable and that every mitzvah, Every single mitzvah that every single Jewish person does, no matter who they are, is valuable to Hashem just like a diamond. And so you don't have to do all 613 of them. If you're not doing any, do one. And that has value. And this was liberating. I had never heard of this before in my entire life. I, was, I went to Hebrew school 
I had a bar mitzvah, and no one had ever bothered to explain to me that it wasn't an all or nothing thing. I remember one time asking my parents if I could go to synagogue more often with my grandparents, and the response was, we're not going to keep kosher. Which made sense to me, right? So it's all or nothing. So, like, why bother going to synagogue if you're not going to also keep kosher and do shiluch hakain and and all of I don't know. I'm, I guess last part, last week's parsha. I mean, <laughs> if you're not going to do all of the 613 mitzvahs, 620 if you include the rabbinic ones, I mean, you might as well not do any of them. Which, again, in some ways, that makes a lot of sense to you because you don't want to be fake. You don't want to be somebody who's fronting. You want to be a self-consistent person. I get that. But Hashem doesn't really think that way. If every mitzvah is valuable to him. Do a mitzvah. It's a diamond. And I'm like, this is incredible. And, and he said something then. He said, why not try an experiment? I'm like, oh, I'm a scientist. I love experiments. He said, yeah, pick a mitzvah, do it for a little while, and see how it goes. And if you like it, keep doing it. Maybe add another one. And if you don't like it, I don't think Rabbi Korn would have suggested to stop, but I, I remember the idea was do an experiment. And I'm like, I'm a scientist. This whole Judaism thing, I never actually gave it a shot. I never took the time to really investigate myself whether or not there, this was something that I valued. And I said, if, if I'm a real scientist, I shouldn't be afraid of data. Data are objective. You know, I should follow the data and do an experiment. So I did. And I decided right then and there that I'm going to start putting on tefillin. Because remember, I told you my Zaydi al-Vashalom had, had given me tefillin, and I carried them with me in my sock drawer everywhere I went for the last decade. Never put them on. Never put them on right, again but you had uh, it with since you. my bar mitzvah. But I had them with me because it was my, my Zaydi passed away after my bar mitzvah, and it was like it was like a piece of him. But the craziest part is, remember that the, the, the nerdy Dvar Torah that I heard for, that I've talked about in Yom Kippur? I remembered one from my youth about three brises and there's tefillin and there's Shabbos. Bottom line is I remembered you don't put on tefillin on Pesach. And so I waited till after Pesach to put on the tefillin. And I started putting on tefillin every day. Baruch Hashem, I haven't, since Isru Chag of that year, I've put on tefillin every day since then. And that was it. And, you know, I'm like, this, this is great. I love this mitzvah. Let me, let me, let me try another one. How, how much could it hurt? Did you know what to say when you were putting the tefillin on? Or you were just like doing the routine of, of rapping in each morning? Because I would think you wouldn't know the specific prayers that go with it or to say Shema or anything like that. Jeff, I love that question. I mean, you're showing your Judaism privilege here. Uh, it's not, forget the prayers, how to put them on your arm. And I found like on like Chabad of Cyberspace, you know, back in the day before Chabad.org, right? And I found like there was like instructions. The first day I put on tefillin, it must have taken me like half an hour to figure out what, and I and I know for a fact I was doing it wrong. It doesn't really matter. But, you know, it, it, it got faster. It was, it was a very interesting thing. By the way, a week later, after I'm putting on tefillin for a week, I'm walking in Washington Square Park on a Friday afternoon, and this bacher, this yeshiva student, who was actually helping out at the Seder that I went to, he sees me and he recognizes me. So he comes up to me and he says, hey, do you want to put on tefillin? So I'm like, oh, it's okay, I already put on tefillin today. He's like, good for you. No, he said, he said it'll only take a few minutes. He didn't believe me. Why would he believe me? Wow. I mean, I showed up to this Seder. I was not, you know, doing any mitzvahs at all. Why would he believe me? So I'm like, yeah, I already did it today. He's like, it'll only take a few minutes. I said, no, seriously, I already put on film today. I've been putting it on every day this week. He's like, really? 
says, why? I'm like, well, because what the rabbi said, that every mitzvah is valuable. He's like, wow. Wow, Baruch Hashem, it's amazing. I think he and I went and made a l'chaim at a bar after that. It was great. And then you said that because you liked what was happening from putting on tefillin, you thought, why not try a second mitzvah? So where did you go from there? I got a sitter. I got a sitter. I started saying Shema in the morning, in the evenings. That I started giving a little stucca every day. But it's, it's, you know, people always ask, well, how long did it take before your, you know, 620 mitzvahs? I said, yeah, but let's take a giant step back and realize that given the fact that I'm not a Jewish priest, I don't live in the land of Israel and there is no holy temple, you know, the number of actual practical mitzvahs that I'm doing on a daily basis is substantially and significantly less than 613 mitzvahs. I said, and as far as ones that are lifestyle changing, I would argue that, you know, okay, you know, davening every morning, first of all, half the people I know have a mindfulness routine that is just as long as shachris, if not longer. And everyone will agree, by the way, that taking moments out of your life to focus and meditate and connect with something greater than you is both practically a useful thing to do for your own mental well-being, for your own mental health, but also for your future prospects. As a more centered person, you'll achieve more. I'm not saying you should daven because it's going to make you more productive in your in your work life, but it doesn't not make you more productive. It certainly does. And then kosher food. Okay, it's food. I, I happen to enjoy food. And it was definitely hard giving up going to a different Manhattan restaurant every day or twice a day. But the reality is there's great kosher restaurants. Kosher food is not like it was when I was growing up in the 80s in Canada, where there was very few things with a hexer. Now, I tell people, go to a grocery store, go to a star market. If you take something off the shelf and it doesn't have a hexer, I promise you everything around it has a hexer. And so it's, you know, as far as lifestyle is concerned, you know, yeah, slowly, slowly you, you add and uh, one, two, skip a few. Eventually, your Shemitah mitzvahs. So I want to now parallel path two things about you, what you're doing career-wise and what's happening with you religiously. Because what's so interesting about your story is that what turned you on to it was that you're thinking like someone who's in science who says, I can think about this from a data perspective. You know, I can try a mitzvah, see if it's good or bad, add another one. So your, your career is going that way. But the more you get into religion, you realize it's not just about data. There's stuff around faith and things that you can't explain simply from experimentation. So I'm, I'm wondering what's going on as your career is continuing to progress. And at the same time, you're getting more into religion and, and how science and religion are meshing for you. It's a, it's a great question. I think it's really important. Uh, what's the old saying that uh, the first sip from the chalice of science will make somebody an atheist? But if you drink all the way to the bottom, God is waiting for you. I think that's absolutely true. I think, by the way, I think the same problem can be said of knowledge of Torah. I think if you do anything superficially, first of all, you're not going to be excited by it. Anything you do, you should try to do it in a deep, meaningful way because you're going to get the most out of it. So if all you do is is read Chumash or the, like, remember the really old, bad English translations of the Pentateuch, right? It's like, that, thou, thou for art thou now? And I mean, I've been speaking English, I would say, most of my life, and I still don't understand half of what's written there. I love these new translations you can get, whether, whether it's uh, the 
Chaim Miller's version, or you can get Chabad.org has one. There's a bunch of these. Uh, Corin has a good one, where it's just like down-to-earth, reasonable English translations, right? They're not taking editorial liberties, but they're also just making it readable. But even more than that, if you don't learn Rashi, or you don't learn Medrash, if you don't learn Mishnah or Talmud or Chassidus, if, if you're not learning the, the deep stuff, sure, you're learning the superficial stuff, which I, I suppose might excite some people, but I think that the reality is is that all of the good stuff's waiting beneath the surface. The same thing's true of science, right? So somebody asked me once, can I, can I teach them everything about, I forget what topic, what topic A in, in 30 minutes? I'm like, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely not. I said, I, you know, if you, if you have time, if you have interest, I can sit here and I can teach you all you need to know to become a master of it. But the reality is, if you're going to think after 30 minutes of a conversation that you deeply understand something, what kind of expectation is that? How could we expect to take generations of knowledge in science and distill it down into a few sound bites? They teach in some of these, you know, high schools, they teach sound bites. The mitochondrion is the powerhouse of the cell. But what does that mean? What, what, what can you do with that? And why? Anyways, I, all I'm saying is I think learning was the most important thing that I did. I decided right then, very quickly, I just started learning. I went to the rabbi, I said, hey, and we started learning together. And I started just anything I can get my hands on just to, to soak it in as far as Judaism was concerned. I was also trying to you know get my PhD so I can get a job. But funny enough, the principles that I was learning in academia were exactly the same principles I was bringing with me to my Jewish learning. I, I, I always tell my students, if, if you think you're going to learn by sitting back on your bed and reading it like it's Harry Potter, you're not going to learn it deeply. To learn something deeply, you have to dig in. You have to try to tease out differences and similarities, make connections, active learning, active reading. And so, right, what do we teach the, the guys in yeshiva to do? You don't just read the daf. You start arguing with your friend about it. You say, well, no, but didn't we see in this daf and this daf? Or can I contrast this with this other halacha that I know or this other sugya that I know? Well, where's the contrast? Where's the similarity? The same thing that they teach yeshiva bachrim about really deep learning is really what you need to become an expert in any field, like chemical physics, for example. It's the same thing. And so I had already somehow known some of these principles. And so when I started learning Torah, it was like just natural to keep applying them. Your perspective is is so interesting to me because I feel like you often hear that there's someone who believes in science or someone who believes in religion and that, and that they have to be at odds with each other. But listening to your answer you kind of have a way that they're complementing each other and that you're existing in both worlds and finding them useful to each other. It's funny, Jeff, because people say this all the time. And I definitely grew up with uh, with that impression. You know, no one ever took me aside in like fifth grade and said, hey, Benji, Torah, science, they don't go... No one ever took me aside and said they don't go together, but it was certainly the impression that we were given, certainly. But <laughs> the facts don't bear that out. Just look at the historical data, first of all. The number of huge scientists, world-changing scientists, who also had a deep belief in God and the role of religion 
is a large number. Currently, there are many very prominent, huge scientists who are also religious people. So you're, you're, you're right on, on target here. You know, I ha- obviously I had the same question, like, can I even do this? Like, is this allowed? You know, I'm getting a PhD. Should I really even be delving into this? So I, I did research. And when I found out that there were people like Brian Keating and there were people like Isidore Isaac Rabi, you know, as I said, I, I had a huge influence from Chabad. I'm still, I'm a Lubavitcher now. You know, somebody pointed out that the Rebbe, was a scientist. He was an engineer. He had degrees in engineering and mathematics from the biggest universities in the world before the war. And if people that were clearly smarter than I was and who clearly knew more science and more Torah than I did saw no problem with the two coexisting, who am I to say that I know better than, than these giants? And so it was, it was kind of easy for me to put questions aside. There's a, there's a story, um, Velvel Greenall Vashalem, who, was, uh, who worked for NASA for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, he was very close to the Rebbe. He had a lot of questions about science and Torah, and at first the Rebbe didn't answer him. And only later did the Rebbe answer. And he asked the Rebbe why the Rebbe waited. And the Rebbe said, because faith is not when you have all of your questions answered. But faith is when you still have questions and you believe anyways. And for me, what I took that to mean is the expectation that we should fully understand everything, whether it's about the world and science or even fully grasp the whole Torah as normal, (laughs) sentient, but at the same time, very fundamentally limited human beings is absurd. In fact, we aren't going to ever have all the answers to everything. There's layers of reality that both from a scientific perspective, we're never going to be able to fully understand. That's just the nature of, of physics. But there's also layers of reality that we're never going to fully understand. That's the nature of, of a locus, of godliness. But what both disciplines say is, but you can still ask the questions and try to study them, dig a little bit deeper and learn a little bit more. And I found that to be incredibly liberating because it means that on the most fundamental level, they do fundamentally agree about how a person should study and interact with the world. This was, and, and I never, and I never looked back. That was the last time I ever had that question. So now take me inside the classroom. Like I mentioned in the intro about you teaching at Boston University. So our listeners are going to hear an audio interview, and they're not going to see what I'm seeing while we're talking, which is the kippah and the long beard. So you're in the classroom talking about science. You have Jews, non-Jews, religious Jews, secular Jews, like a whole mix of people. So they're hearing you talk science, but they obviously are making assumptions about you as they're, by, by how you look. Does it ever come up, hey, what about religion? Does that come into the mix of the conversation when you're teaching? Great question. Actually, just a correction. I usually wear a hat and jacket and tzitzis too, so <laughs> into the classroom. <laughs> There's actually a great story. I was riding my moped down Commonwealth Avenue maybe a decade ago, uh, one summer afternoon, and, and someone snapped a photo. So my beard, I've, you know, my, my beard's like four and a half tfachim long, so I don't know, what is that, a foot and a half long? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big beard. <laughs> So and my so my beard's flying in the wind. My tits are hanging out, and I'm riding my moped down Kamav. 
and a student snaps a photo of it and posts it on the incoming student Facebook page. And the caption is, I'm so excited to be coming to Boston University. Where else will you see an Amish riding a moped? <laughs> and so then another student corrects them. So I don't think the Amish are allowed to ride a moped. And a third one pipes in, hey, stop telling the Amish what they are and aren't allowed to do. And then the final comment was someone saying, no, I think he's a Hasidic Jewish person. And I think he's our chemistry professor. And so I think by now most people know what they're, they're in for when they show up in my class. Students Google their professors, so they know, right. they know what they're about to see. As far as, you know, what do I do in class? You know, I come to class. I have my hat, my jacket. Usually I take off my hat. Usually I take off my jacket. Sometimes it's cold. I leave my jacket on. And uh, I start lecturing about chemistry. The students are paying a pretty hefty tuition. And from my perspective, it would absolutely be theft to take that class time and teach them anything other than chemistry. So I'm not going to talk about religion in the classroom. That's not appropriate. If students come to my office hours and want to ask questions, absolutely. I learn weekly with multiple students, chassidus, chumash, fine, but not in class, right? In class, they're there for, for a reason. And uh, in, in fact, a friend of mine, Rabbi Posner, who's the, uh, the Chabad rabbi at Boston University, he points out that there's actually more that we can do just wearing a yarmulke and tzitzis and being a great professor, doctor, lawyer, accountant, whatever it is, than going and trying to talk about religion. Right? I'm, I'm not there to convince anyone. I'm just living my best life. And f to me, that means believing in Hashem. And, and performance of mitzvahs. And it doesn't interfere at all. In fact, I would argue that it, it enhances what I do professionally. And I want students to see that. They see that I'm proud of it. And I think it makes an impression on them. And so there's one piece of your story we didn't get into, which is the, both the family reaction to your growth and also as you start thinking about maybe starting your own family and you have this very diverse background from where you started to where you are and the kind of person that would make sense to come into your life. Sure. You know, it, so my family at first was concerned. You know, I was making some pretty big shifts and changes in my life. I think that there's also probably an element of a feeling of rejection and why is the way we've done things not sufficient? I mean, they didn't articulate that, but I'm sure there's some of that. You know, I think they were concerned that I would stop being interested in being a professional, which, you know, very soon after getting married, I got my position at Boston University and, you know, keep my careers kept growing since then, won some awards. If, uh, and I think that they're very proud. I know they're very proud and they're very happy with the choices that I've made. So, yeah, I, you know, I start. Yeah. What was the other question? the kind of person who would be the right fit for you for marriage, like you could be dating people who are secular and becoming religious and you're sort of growing together. You could be looking for someone who was raised religious, thinking that'll kind of push me even further along my path. So what kind of person were you looking for and who ultimately came into your life? So my friend, Rabbi Korn, my spiritual advisor and, and now close friend, I said to him, I said, I, th I think I'd like to start looking for a shidduch. And he said, okay, my aunt knows people, does shidduchim, you should meet her. And the thing is, I had only been observant for a little time, and I was still in grad school. And in the back of his mind, I think he wanted me to 
get my PhD, then maybe go to yeshiva for a little while. Like I was kind of doing like the, like the half grad school, half yeshiva kind of thing, right? Where I was like, you know, doing my graduate school, but then learning as much as I could on the side. And I think he had in mind that I should have more time to develop before doing that. But, you know, in my mind, I'm 24 years old now. I'm like, I'm not getting any younger. I'm going to finish my PhD. I'll be 26. And then, you know, I'm going to go to yeshiva. I'm going to be 30 before I get married. Forget that. Let's, you know, let's, let's, let's do this. So he introduced me to his aunt, figuring that, you know, just to perhaps to, to placate my interest in moving forward and to, to kind of put the brakes on. She's like, oh, I have a perfect girl for you. Yeah, <laughs> she's like I have the perfect girl. She didn't grow up religious, but she became more more observant. She went to Machon Alta, a, a seminary in in Tzfas, in Eretz Yisrael, and she just came back. She's working in Philadelphia for these great shluchim for Rabbi Sherman in Philadelphia, and um, yeah, she's coming in for a, a chasana in a week and a half. Why why don't you guys meet and see how it goes? I, depending on who you ask, my wife or myself, my wife says we went on eight dates. I said we went on seven dates, but uh, that that was it. I, I married her. Wow. So the um, person who introduced you really was right when she said, I have the perfect girl for you. Yeah, 100%. And so you mentioned grandkids. Um, I'm assuming that means you have kids now. I don't know how old they are, but in terms of explaining to them the difference between how you're raising them versus how you were raised and how their grandparents are living their life, how do you explain all that to them? Well, Bliya and Hara, I have four daughters. I have a 14-year-old, a 13-year-old, a 7-year-old, and and actually today is my uh, my 4-year-old's birthday. She just turned 4. And uh, all daughters, they're wonderful. And um, it what's funny is so so they're they're from from birth, right? So they they've only ever known this from lifestyle that they go to, you know, Chabad schools and they they go to Chabad camps and they learn Chassidus. But they also can quote the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and and like half of the Monty Python movies because, you know, again, not that they've seen them, God forbid, but so it's interesting. I guess the kids of Bali Chuva always have have an interesting life juxtaposing a from lifestyle, but also the fact that their parents like ate, ate at McDonald's. You know, I, I try to tell my daughter that we make better food than Mickey D's does, so we'll, it, it's going to be okay. And my parents are, you know, they're very close with my kids. My seven-year-old, the other day, my wife was looking for her. And where was she? She was sitting in the corner with the phone calling Zadie. She just does that. She'll just pick up the phone, call Zadie, which I love. And my, my, my 13-year-old and my mother talk, I think, probably at least once a day, if not twice a day. Baruch Hashem, I think because of our deep spiritual beliefs, I think my kids are closer with their grandparents than they might have been if, you know, if we hadn't been as observant. Before we close out the interview, we usually go to our lightning round. I just want to ask you one kind of summary question, which is you think back to your friend who said, I have this dream and I want you to get in touch with your Jewish roots. If you put yourself back in that moment, could you ever have imagined how far you would take your Jewish journey from that one conversation you had with your friend? There's a there's an old Yiddish expression, right? Man trach God laughs, right? Man plans God laughs. I think that if you would have asked me at any point in my life, if you would have asked me when I was a chubby high school kid, 
if I'm going to be competing at the North American Championships for dancing, I would have told you you're crazy. If you would have told, if you would have come to me then and told me that you're going to be a Hasidic rabbi and the professor at Boston University, I tell you you were nuts. I think that it's important to realize that at any point in our lives we have no idea where we're going. I still believe firmly that Mashiach's coming imminently, and that the next moment is going to look incomparable to what we have currently. If we go back in time to tell me that going to a Passover Seder would have this kind of a transformative impact on my life, I would probably be quite incredulous. That said, I think that we have to remember that that's the power of every interaction. Every moment in our lives, we are on a a knife's edge for the decisions we make. Going down one path or the other path could lead to completely diametrically opposite results. And so every interaction with every person, every kind word, every email you write, even just the way we choose to hold ourselves and interact with the world can have incredible impacts. What if, what if he had never called me? What if he said, ah, I'm not going to bug him. He's never going to do it. So, you know, maybe if, if you have a dream that your friend needs a kind word, call him up. I should probably do more of that myself. Well said, and uh, perfect lead into the closeout, which is our lightning round, where you're not going to be able to use data and research. You've got to answer fast this time. Think you can handle it? I will, I will do my best. Okay, so you mentioned that there are a lot of prominent scientists out there, so I'm wondering if there's one or two that you really look up to and admire for the work that they've done. Lubavitcher Rebbe. Okay. No, I mean, um, is there, I, as far as people who maybe practice as scientists, I'd say Rabbi. You also talked about this idea that as you were getting more into science and religion, you even questioned yourself, can someone do both? Is it right that I'm going into this field? So what would you say to someone who's in high school or just starting out in college who thinks, I want to really get into science, but they're also either already religious or they're starting to become religious about how they can live in those two worlds together? I think that everybody can do what they want for a profession and everyone can choose whatever principles they want to guide their lives. And the principles of faith are completely consistent and congruent with the principles of science. And they should absolutely study what's going to make them excited to go to work and then leave it at work and come home and be with their family and observe. And so tell us, as the last question, what is the signature dish at the Abrams Shabbos table? Okay, so for, for, for dinner, I'd say my wife makes a pulled beef brisket roast, which, you know, sometimes there's wraps, sometimes there's no wraps. My daughter makes like pickled onions. It's really quite phenomenal. Side dish, she makes a pineapple quiche, which I never thought I would say that I enjoy quiche or pineapples until I ate this. It's uh, really, it's to live for. And then Shabbos lunch, chili, five-alarm chili. <laughs> the more habaneros, the better. And uh, we, we like spicy food in my house, and you can get a trollant anywhere, but where can you get a really good Texas chili? That is a beautiful one to end on. Now I'm craving certain things the next time I'm up in the area. So Look me up. I just want to say, Benjamin Abrams, you're out of the lightning round, and I want to thank you for joining me on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard 
or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.